If the United States appeared invulnerable following the disillusion of its biggest geostrategic rival, the Soviet Union, in 1990, and America's military victory against Soviet-equipped tanks in Iraq in 1991, the 2000s began to chip away at this image, starting with the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York City in 2001. By 2005, Iraq had gone from military conquest to imperial quagmire, and the country's city on the Mississippi River Delta, New Orleans, became a literal quagmire as Class V Hurricane Katrina collapsed the levees and flooded the town. After thousands died during mismanagement of the crisis response, Katrina was the most expensive natural disaster in U.S. history in both financial as well as social capital terms, revealing the limits and capability of a people who fancied themselves a superpower. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello, welcome to the Superdome. This is Myth of the 20th Century, and I am Hank Oslo. I'm joined by a full house. We've got Nick Mason, Adam Smith, and Hans Lander. We're coming to you live from New Orleans, circa 2005 maybe about mid to late summer things are looking a little bit dicey out the window here uh, i don't know what do you guys think well i don't know i, some Toby I actually Keith, slept so. in uh the superdome as did. what like last night true story true story well i mean for for sticking with the bit this is 2005 i mean <laughs> i guess but yeah uh I did. Uh, I did stay, and it was after the storm, but it was. Um, I was traveling, and I didn't have any money, and I, uh, I stayed. In this. It was kind of a nightmare hell experience. Was the door open? But I can't imagine it was nearly as bad. No, the door. No shit, they locked the door. Wow, I'm surprised. Were yeah. there sc- screams yeah. coming uh, from inside? Uh, uh no. No, there were a lot of like uh, schizophrenic bums, though, and uh, there was no violence. Um, there was boxed orange juice as well. Uh, not one of the better nights, but also not the worst. I've seen some worse ones. <laughs> but yeah, it was not nearly as bad. Course, I don't think, for the, what it was the late millennials and Gen Zers, uh, for whom Superdome does not trigger immediate associations. We're talking about Hurricane Katrina tonight. Uh, so, yeah, I guess there are people who are too young to really, really uh, pick that up. You know? Yeah, I mean the the mechanics I mean, sure of the incident from itself the show title are. At this point, but. Yeah, I mean you know what you're getting into. Uh, the mechanics of it are not necessarily as interesting, I think, as the sort of uh, 
media curation after the fact. I can't really decide at this late date whether I'm like an extra powerful George W. Bush hater because now I really understand what he's all about or if I'm like a George W. Bush apologist because retroactively I hate the people who are George W. Bush attackers even more. It's really, uh, I'm oscillating between uh, extremes here at this, uh, this moment in time. Sounds but, a lot like Kanye West. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, Kanye really like he, he's kind of the, uh, Forrest Gump figure, I think of like 2000 through present, uh, especially kind of in conjunction with his extended family. Now, uh, really with his extended family, he could go all the way back to the nineties, but <laughs> back to OJ. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, like you can start with a weather report, I guess, if you're going to talk about Katrina, it's not necessarily, uh, important to document all the twists and turns, but late August of 2005, it's apparent that there's a big hurricane that is going to hit somewhere on the Gulf coast. These things are always kind of uh, erratic by nature, um, literally by nature. There have been a lot of close calls and quote-unquote direct hits uh, over the years at various localities that happen to be on various uh, eastern and gulf seaboards. But late August, I mean, we're talking like August 25th, 26th, 27th, it's apparent that, okay, something's going to hit New Orleans or the vicinity, and it's going to be pretty bad. There's a series of kind of agency moves, like they pull out the National Guard, for instance, uh, during the actual storm itself, because it doesn't help anyone if you've got a uh, Humvee in like four feet of water or whatever. Uh, there are various voluntary evacuation orders issued by local municipalities and then mandatory, quote unquote, uh, evacuation orders. And then the storm hits. Uh, and these this is when things kind of uh, get real, I guess. Uh, what's interesting in my mind, like we can talk about the um, the fact that like, yes, it was a genuinely big storm. And by August 29th, uh, you had 80% of the city submerged, just completely uh, wrecked, like levees broken that were these uh, giant earthworks uh, designed to protect the city from some magnitude of flood that actually uh, failed, like they exceeded their design capacity. Like you've got a five foot wall and a six foot storm surge, your wall is coming down. But what's interesting to me is the way that it sort of exists in the, uh, popular and elite consciousness at the time and contemporarily, like if you stage kind of from that moment of, you know, maybe August 30th or so, and at this point, the city is underwater, effectively. You've got news reports coming in. Twitter doesn't really exist at the time. Uh, 
what's your sort of everybody here is old enough to kind of have at least vague recollections like what do you what do you remember about hurricane katrina it felt it felt like out of a movie i i didn't quite at the time i was sort of in a weird place in my life where i was starting to lose a lot of uh, faith in the american mythos that i had grown up with and this was sort of like huh um wow this country not only can't fight in iraq it can't even defend its own goddamn uh contiguous borders from not only immigrants but uh apparently large amounts of water and it just kind of was another nail in the coffin of my patriotism frankly for at least the government um and it it kind of just went from there for the for the next uh you know then until now Well, I distinctly I lived in it, New Orleans, uh, New Orleans, uh, oh. briefly right after, uh, right after the storm. And when I lived there, uh, the population of New Orleans, I think, was around 350,000. OK, so saw a city pretty well hollowed out. And I mean, part, like the lower ninth ward was just decimated. I mean, people, if you wanted to just go live in some multi-story you know four-bedroom house you could do that i mean you might have to contend with various types of wildlife uh but you could go do that i mean there's a lot of squatting the stories that i heard from people who grew up there and who lived through the worst of the actual storm i did not i was not there during the storm but i was there uh, not too long after uh, stories I heard were very Lafondian, I would say, in the sense that uh, what James Lafond described in, in interviews we did with him of, around the Baltimore riots and uh, the other, you know, highlight reels from the past two decades or so uh, in America, there was a lot of that kind of stuff where you had extra, extrajudicial assassinations taking place by the pigs and by you know, gangbangers, like everyone with a score to settle was out there doing it. It was basically all crime is legal. If the flood doesn't kill you, if like the toxic debris and shit doesn't kill you, then maybe someone will just shoot you. Pretty wild time. Yeah, I mean, mean, Nick, I I distinctly remember watching it on television. Um I really didn't understand what was going on right away, although um, I think uh, just given kind of where I grew up, hurricanes are not really a thing. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me that an entire city was flooding. Um, And it was particularly strange to see an American city flooding. Uh, You know, you grow up uh, at that time in the United States and... I never really seen a natural disaster up to that point that had inflicted huge damage like that and basically taken a whole city offline. It was sort of unimaginable. And um, then I, I remember the news coverage uh, was very strange because at on some level it seemed like the TV anchors didn't know what to make of it. At first, um, they seemed relatively you know worried but like okay 
it's a bad hurricane. It's like the one in 92 in the Upper East Coast or, you know, the one in Florida. Like, eh, okay, bad hurricane, not the end of the world. And then, you know, over the next 72 hours, next five days, you could see that the the mood surrounding it had turned from, you know, bad hurricane happens once a decade, once every once every other decade, nothing we can really do, to catastrophic failure. And I remember the phrase coming on the news, the levees have broken, the levees have broken. And that was the realization that the entire city is flooded. And not just flooded, I mean, irreparably damaged. Every sewer system is offline. The lights are gone. The utilities are gone. Everything is out. Uh, everyone who had the ability to get out of the city uh, after Katrina made landfall did so immediately, recognizing what was happening. You were basically having full-blown um, uh, civil implosion. And the people that didn't, as Nick was saying, um, it, it kind of became like a Mad Max environment. And I heard similar stories. I heard similar stories uh, that, you know, almost are science fiction-esque, but there is a little bit of truth to some of it that you can find. Stories of private contractors, mercenary types being deployed. Stories of good old boys basically whacking 25, 30 looters a pop and um, talking to the county sheriff and just working out a deal where they kind of just dump them in a landfill somewhere and don't talk about it. Do, do we have an estimate of how many people were killed that way? Aside from it. drowning well, what, what, and, no and natural-ish well, causes, so there like were, murders, there were couple, how many were there? Yeah, there, there were a couple of um, videos that are now almost impossible to find. But we're search. You could find them a while back of post Katrina interviews with people just outside New Orleans um, or in certain wards that are less dense, um, admitting on camera that they had killed at least a dozen people in this ward or a dozen people in another ward. Um, who were suspected looters. They didn't know how many people they shot, but they know they shot several people, some of whom got away. Um, I think the death toll is, what is it, Hank, like at least 1,400 people just dead yeah, as, it was as, a, like, as a standard number. Which is impossible to, like, right. if you've got like a waterborne corpse, then like, sure, you can count those. But... And the death toll was always probably includes the missing. Some of the drama, well, some of the drama immediately after Katrina. So there were lots of post Katrina, three months, four months out. The political drama really took off. Oh yeah, and, and it was it was primarily due to. I honestly think it was due to um, the Democrats lost the election just the year prior, and. Absolutely. And they were basically looking for anything to go after Bush with. And this was also um, kind of one of the moments where the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, had been tasked to work with, which was a creation of W, 
uh, effectively after 9-11 that had broad powers to uh, act as a sort of coordinator of resources and response for all of this stuff. And they had fa- they failed as well. And so this political drama came up, and I distinctly remember one of the pl- pieces of political drama, and you can still find articles on like Truth Dig and stuff like that, Counterpunch, um, the real death toll of Hurricane yeah. Katrina. This and, is like this is the height of you know kind of the left blogosphere. Yes, like yeah. kind of the Daily Coast, uh, like things of that ilk. Like people where the internet had just come online and uh, hybridized itself in this kind of cybernetic hive mind with like the leftist. Uh, quasi opposition i guess to george w bush yeah commander and thief as you're fond of saying um and oh, yeah God, ke- keep in mind infinite george w bush memes facebook well, was I founded in 2004 so yeah this really was kind of even before social media I mean, it exactly didn't really take off until like 06 07 so yeah this was before social media so you really were like if you're reading something online you're on some like weird like blogspot.com kind of thing it wasn't uh the karens of the world speaking down your throat it was kind of like internet cranks and you still really a lot of people still watched msnbc cnn things like that fox news that was kind of how people got tapped into the political zeitgeist and it was very much yeah of that era where bush was this uh uh hitler figure and yeah i mean if you think trump was compared to that i mean for unreasonable reasons i mean they did the same thing to bush um And it was just, you know, Obama was like, you know, well, that never happened. You know, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden it comes back and it's uh, it was that kind of vibe for sure. I mean, the lens that I see this whole thing through is kind of the 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 myth of the myth of the myth. That's as far as I'm going to go of uh, kind of societal fragility. So like pretty much everybody in a certain kind of place is like, yeah, you know, we're about four missed meals from just like total race war. And that's true. And it's not because like people can absorb a surprising amount of punishment and they're, these kinds of like weird ephemeral social circumstances that dictates to what extent things like quote unquote devolve into chaos. And so the initial media reaction, especially because of the media circa 2005, I mean, you're talking about people at the end of like a 20 year career that are sending the narrative at that point, like really more like 20, 30, 40 years so these are people who are not really woke. These are like, you know, Walter Mondale liberal types that are, you know, respectable liberals. Like we've, we've got to do something about this Iraq situation, but uh, nonetheless, like they've got a job to do. And so when you hear like order has broken down in new Orleans, it's like, shit the black people 
who's watching the blacks like is anybody watching the blacks oh no this is going to get real bad guys it's kind of because a lot of these people had the formative experience of the 1970 whatever new york uh blackouts and they're mostly old enough to remember at least uh you know kind of via social transmission the black riots of the 60s and 70s that's like immediately where the association goes to and it's not that they're necessarily wrong it's just that they run with absolutely anything that actually fits that narrative so that's the first wave that's like the myth which as we all know being listeners to this show we know the myth doesn't mean that it's not true and then you have like the second wave that comes in and is like you're you're talking about the the uh, the superdome as thunderdome and you're reporting these like mass gang rapes and you know dozens of murderers and people dealing drugs as if that's like the first thing on people's minds when they don't know where their next meal is coming from it's like Ah, but yes, I've got this uh, this ounce of crack. Uh, let's uh, let's do some capitalism here. And none of this stuff is particularly sort of verifiable, but also like there's the cleanup function of well, you know, like the the television footage from a helicopter of like the uh, the contrast between like ah yes, these white people are foraging or they're they're seeking supplies versus like the black guy like floating a loaf of bread like through the water is clearly quote unquote looting like yeah that's like a genuine thing like people need a certain amount of calories the store is a total loss like don't begrudge people their fucking calories in a situation like this so well, that's the second wave and then you have the- there the the stories by the way that turned out to be true like there, there were a lot of counter narratives being run. Like I remember um, the conservative media at the time, their first, the, the first like weird on the ground story to come out was, and this is like pre Twitter for the Zoomers. So on the ground stories are not immediately digested to the public. At the time, they were still going through the traditional media apparatuses. Or maybe forums, but that and or maybe blog posts, but they didn't have a lot of reach. Yeah. Um, a reader sends us this tidbit from right, New exactly. But there were rumors being propagated that um, the the private contractors, the and the uh, various Louisiana National Guard had been seizing firearms from Which private. Were, yeah, citizens. that was true. And that, that was that turned out to be that turned out that to be true. true. That turned out to be true. But at the time, all of the people who immediately created the narrative of well, it's George W. Bush being mean to black people in the Ninth Ward or what the fuck ever. What was really going on in Katrina, as a as a counterfactual narrative, was actually people who were trying to defend themselves from looters, people who were trying to defend themselves or forage or just remain peacefully on their property, um, were being harassed by private goons employed and deputized by the state of Louisiana. And 
overwhelmingly, those people were the working class whites of some of those wards in the outlying areas of the inner city New Orleans. And so this just kind of goes to show many of like the cultural memes that were created as like the real conspiracy behind Hurricane Katrina. And it's all like – they, they it basically it's a bunch of bullshit that amounts to accusations of racism against George W. Bush, who definitely screams racist to me. You know, uh, like the reality is that this was, you know, some kind of strange military operation that they employed to take advantage of the fact that a city had basically fallen into chaos and what was interesting on top of it, too, and this didn't come out until later, much like 9-11, there were war game scenarios that played out almost everything that happened to a T, I think the year prior. And part of it had to do with multiple years of infrastructure reports, both at the federal and state level, that had detailed the fact that these earthen levees um, were not adequate that New Orleans is perhaps um, in the state, you know, New Orleans in particular has perhaps um, third world building codes or had, did at the time. Um, it was several hundred years of piled on nonsense engineering. And it had effectively created a ticking time bomb where the very inadequate uh, Resources that were in place to direct and hold back water flow uh, were the only thing standing in the way of a city that is predominantly below sea level with no great water filtration services, a poorly planned sewer system. Yeah, was, th that, this is just a complete mess that was waiting to happen, and everyone knew it, and they had wargamed it prior to this happening. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's great. It's like yeah. there's a narrative for absolutely everyone. Yes. Like but if, the, you're, my, my if you're point, a left-wing – well, go on. Well, my, my just to sum it up, my point is that even now, like everything about Katrina is framed in like this ridiculous idea of blackness or whatever because New Orleans has is is, is been a majority black city for – Quite a long time, honestly. And the reality is that most of what was really going on and most of what Katrina was being used for after the fact had nothing to do with black people. It just happened to be the first city in America that resembled fucking Baghdad, which is right. where the U.S. military was already conducting those same kinds of operations. Yeah, I mean, it's not like black people per se. It's just... If it had like, happened in when, Providence, Rhode Island, they would have done the same thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know about that. Like the so much of the narrative, especially initially, relied in one direction or the other on like like feral blacks looting and raping, like versus like no they were failed by their government and they're just striving to survive and you can't prove that any of these bad things even happened like that 
it wasn't like well obviously the black part is is unique to new orleans but i think hans was saying like the government response would have likely been as bad if it was in providence rhode island i think that's what you're saying i mean the government i i i I credit the government with absolutely nothing i mean this is for a (laughs) lot of people this is their first uh experience you know once you get beyond the bigger which were actually like fairly temporary and didn't cause that much kind of infrastructure damage but the bigger uh riots of the 60s and 70s like most of the generations succeeding that had no experience with the just total breakdown of society in a context like that and not just like breakdown of society quote unquote but like this infrastructure is gone like you actually have to take physical capital and rebuild it if you want to have you know a power line or sewer i mean whole whole swaths of several wards have never been rebuilt like there there are whole pieces of the city that no longer exist this is this is like the the fourth and the fifth wave then of like well this whole thing it's it's not really a crisis so much as an opportunity to right size the the, the area which is like an, a narrative that I swear actually existed. Like I was a uh, a bona fide reader of Reason magazine at the time, <laughs> like leather jacket and all. Uh, and that was like a narrative that existed. Like this is this is great because now that the schools are destroyed, everybody's going to get school vouchers, like that kind of shit. Like, total Cato Institute bullshit. And then, the, of course, the counter to that, the lefties pointing out, like, wow, you, you sound like a dystopian neoliberal goon. Like, this, this is fantastic. Like, the mask is completely off. Like, fuck you and fuck your school vouchers. Like, in the kind of pre-woke uh, area, era of this left-right dialectic, you could actually kind of have this back and forth without it immediately being shut down because, you know, racism or whatever. Uh, It was really kind of stunning to watch it arrive and like both sides actually being kind of right for the wrong reasons simultaneously at each other. Just a a complete like narrative omni shambles to match the, the physical destruction on the ground, like the amount of just naked, ideological posturing laid bare was just astounding well here so it's funny you bring up the libertarian argument because prior to this i actually uh was doing some research and i found a an article from cato.org our old friends at cato but it's actually not a bad article and it sums up kind of what you're saying which is the the critique of fema now, this was another aspect of uh, my recollection of Katrina as it happened. Uh, I kept hearing about FEMA, FEMA, FEMA. And I remember thinking at the time, what is that? <laughs> I think I asked one of my parents, and they said it's like they do natural disaster things. No one even knows what it stands for. Um, it has the federal emergency management agency, right? Like it, it just, it has a very nondescript name and it just sort of, it has a very blanket 
authority over a variety of projects. Well, not not really authority. Like if FEMA isn't in charge of jack shit, they have certain resources that are available to them theoretically, but like there's and no I think that that FEMA was the battalions. that was the the criticism at the time too is like in regards to FEMA, everyone was talking about FEMA. Well, the part of the criticism was that FEMA was not in charge of enough. They weren't given the authority. This is like some scandal. And um, there was some kind of back and forth between DHS and FEMA. They were coordinating. There was a lack of coordination between the Louisiana state government officials and the White House and, and FEMA. And, you know, you have like you have 20 or 30 different parties here all trying to coordinate and gather resources. Well, that and, begs the question, like trying to coordinate right. in a situation like this where essentially like this is every I, I want to say that I have the timelines right. And this was also coincident with like the first uh, zombie wave, like the like zombie the, the fiction, fiction genre. But, yeah, I, like that, that I mean, came a few years later. I yeah, feel like. it seems like it. Walking Dead was well past 2010. I'm not even and, talking about like Walking Dead on TV. I uh, I might have the timelines mixed here because it's very. I remember uh, Dawn of the Dead came out around that time. That, that was before, I think. Actually, I, I will say with Walking Dead, the uh, the reference. I know that I, I watched like the first season of that show, and I can say that the the, the FEMA was included in the show. And if not for yes. Katrina, uh, no one would have known what that was. Not yeah. true. I, mean, the, I had heard of it. I remember the, the meme debuted yeah. in 2003. I mean, like, well, I, I remember. So I, I bring this up. Well, conspiracy people knew about FEMA since the FEMA 80s, camps. When it comes <laughs> oh, yeah. To it, was, the, it was like a meme in Day Well, yeah. Do you guys. Oh, the meme, the early memes with FEMA were pretty funny. You ever see the, like,. Uh, the T-shirt was like my my home was destroyed and I lost everything, but I got uh, all I got was this FEMA T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I bring this up because it's if only <laughs> when when you have this you know po- like all these things are cliches, but they're cliches for a reason because they developed into cliches because people kept fucking talking about it. You have a post-apocalyptic circumstance. And everybody looks around and it's like, well, you know, it would be nice if we sort of did it this way instead. Like this is it's it's such a trope that it's not even a trope. It's like the inevitable scene after the grand finale of your you either have it in act one where it's like maybe we can do things differently this way and then everything goes to shit or like after the triumphal reestablishment of society, everybody is like, maybe we do things different this way. But after you have like the complete breakdown of any sort of local, I'm, I'm really careful to not say law and order because law and order is not the thing that creates social order, like social order creates social order. Law and order is an external entity trying to, you know, place their thumb on the scales and, you know, ideally harmonize with that process. But it's not responsible for that process. You can take the government of Singapore and drop it into, you know, Congo or whatever, and it's still going to be Congo. But if you look around New Orleans post-Katrina, 
it's apparent that there are certain interests in play. And a lot of those do not, frankly, have an interest in either, you know, salvaging whatever human detritus is left on the ground that's theoretically salvageable. They do have an interest in reorienting the economics of the region. They do have an interest in reorienting the political structure of the region. So, like, when you talk about, oh, all these agencies are trying to cooperate, there's really vastly different incentives if you're, you know, Michael Brown, uh, the famous, like, heck of a job brownie, uh, uh, George W. Bush uh, apparatchik, versus, like, the head of the New Orleans Police Department versus the governor of Louisiana versus some random mayor of some suburb uh, 40 miles away. Like, it, these people were not coordinating, and it's not clear that they should have coordinated if they have genuinely competing interests. Well, so here, for example, I went and found a um, PBS article from September 9th, 2005. Uh, FEMA faces intense scrutiny. And uh, it it's goes into scrutiny. It's always <laughs> like we're just asking questions, not like FEMA forces like faces course of people saying "fuck you." Right. So it has a couple interesting pieces. So it says FEMA defers to state and local emergency teams to handle disasters at their level. If a city cannot respond, the county or the state provides help. If the state lacks the resources, the federal government responds but only at the request of the governor and on the recommendation of the region's FEMA director. In order to tap into FEMA resources, the state's governor must submit a letter to the president requesting to formally invoke the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. In the letter, the governor estimates what resources would be necessary to assist state and local crews. The governor's request doesn't go directly to the president. Instead, the regional FEMA director makes recommendations to the Undersecretary of Emergency Preparedness and Response, also known as the director of FEMA. The Undersecretary then makes recommendations to the head of the Department of Homeland Security, who then briefs the president on the situation. All and this of which was, is pro forma. Right. And so this is also this is part of like what I was hinting at earlier. Part of the scandal at the time was that Bush uh, w had created this, um, you know, he, he had created the Department of Homeland Security. And then in in doing so with, with the Republican Congress at the time, they sort of crafted a, a another layer of um, abstraction between the president and certain functionaries. And honestly, um, in the, in hindsight, it would not have made a fucking difference if uh, FEMA reported directly to Bush or not. Um, yeah, the reporting chain doesn't matter for things that matter. And, and it was like it was they were purpose. I feel like at the time they were purposefully missing the forest through the trees. And they this was one of the things they were leveling at DHS is like, well, why do we need DHS? Like, you know, D or why does this need to be under DHS authority? Because, you know, X, Y, and Z, it doesn't work well from this purely functionalistic, uh, you know, bureaucratic standpoint. Instead of why like, <laughs> DHS, 
is is a power onto itself that can make unilateral decisions apparently on certain recommendations for entire states or regions without even consulting with the president and appropriating federal resources like you guys realize that you've created you know a second layer of presidency like there's Which another pre- just the entire federal bureaucracy right. this is not unique to FEMA this is yeah, literally exactly. every federal organization and like so the ones that are that have a reporting chain and the ones that don't like nobody thinks that if oh you know Yellowstone super super volcano blows up it's like a problem that theoretically it's like well you got the National Park Service and they report to the undersecretary of interior and they report to interior and they report to, and we need to make a direct relationship Right. It's like, no, if it's a big fucking problem, like if the president is looking at it on the news and being like, OK, what do we need to do here? Are we on top of this? Whatever. Like that reporting chain suddenly becomes incredibly short. Like, the reporting chain is not the problem. So it goes in. So this is and again, this is an article written like right after the dust had barely settled. Um, and there's a quote here. Uh, or before that, so the letter had to travel through points in FEMA before the federal government could respond. FEMA deployed regional responders before Katrina made landfall, but a major federal response wasn't evident until days later. The hurricane crippled many state and local emergency agencies in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, leaving them unable to respond to that federal help. And obviously, you're, you should, if you're being logical, you should look at this like, well, that's an immense failure on the part of those three states. And I mean, immense, that they are this unprepared. I don't know that it was a lack of, so preparation means different things. Like, if in a certain kind of organization, you are able, and for particular contingencies, you're able to have, like, game plans for distributed uh, decision-making, so, like, imagine that, like, I've got this warehouse, and I don't just have this one warehouse. I have a dozen different warehouses, and they're all scattered throughout this area, and some shit happens, and I lose contact with two of them. Three of the others are heavily damaged. Four of the others are okay, but I don't know how the actual logistics are between them and the area where whatever is theoretically happening, you know, and now I have to come up with a plan. So if you put yourself in that situation where, okay, I am the guy, I'm the head guy, and I have to now, like, I have these resources, I don't know which of them I actually have, I don't know which of them are actually deployable, and I have to actually figure out what to do, things turn into a shit show. So if you get like an order of magnitude smarter, what you do is you try to coordinate ahead of time. And you're like, okay, I'm going to take a hit on kind of top-down efficiency in exchange for resiliency. And I'm going to say like, here are my orders in advance. Like, I don't know if I'll be able to talk to you. I don't know if you'll be able to get where you're going. Things are going to get fucked up if things don't go according to plan, like if everybody is miraculously uh, 
in operation and everybody is sending shit everywhere, things are also going to be a shit show. There's definitely going to be some trucks that are stuck on some roads that we weren't able to verify were open or not. Like these things are just obvious problems of coordination of large amounts of resources that don't go away no matter what plan like centralization or decentralization or quote unquote market mechanisms or whatever if you have just severe disruption to the ability of the organization to do something. So like, it's not clear to me, honestly, that like FEMA fucked up in a meaningful way. Like they could have had better optics. Like they could have not given sound bites. Michael Brown could have been just like more competent at giving directions, I guess. But in yeah, terms and of gross, it's, it's like not, it's not clear how much that guy was a fall guy or he was just, an idiot. I think it might have been a mix of both. I mean, yeah. Here's here's another quote from this article from the local. Lo- actually, before that, so what happened was that essentially the demolishment of that state and local infrastructure, and I think that really caused the cascading series of breakdowns at DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff in a New York Times interview. From the local level, officials complain of communications breakdowns and the lack of leadership from the federal government, particularly from FEMA director Michael Brown. Reports of FEMA turning down personal personnel and supplies offered by police forces and emergency crews further drew fire from Congress. Well, no shit. It's and like that, yeah. the, the fucking New Orleans Police Department, half of whose officers were just like, fuck you. I'll be gone for a while. I'm taking the squad car. And then, like, the mayor calls you and is like, sir, would you lack any assistance from our officers? And it's like, I literally don't know if you're lying or retarded about the resources that you're theoretically offering. Like, I know my guys. I hired my guys. I don't need to try to, like, figuring out which of my guys are alive and can get to a place and also, like unfucking your diversity hires as part of this endeavor so do as you see appropriate like well that's how that conversation goes yeah and then you have on september 9th chertoff pulled brown from the role of managing hurricane katrina relief efforts uh blanco's office blamed bureaucracy and layers of red tape for blocking an effective emergency effort we wanted helicopters, food, and water. They wanted to negotiate an org chart, Blanco's press secretary told the New York Times. The delayed federal response prompted politicians to question FEMA's entire organization and leadership. One critique was that the, quote, all hazards preparation focused too much on terrorism. The Government Accountability Office found in July 2005 that 31 of the 39 first responder departments agreed that training was adequate for terrorist attacks, but not natural disasters. The report also think it was adequate for terrorist attacks. <laughs> right, just just. Oh, that's so that's a whole other level of hilarity, uh, especially given <clears throat> what's gone on the last sixteen years since this was memed out. But um, the report also found that almost seventy-five percent of grant dollars awarded by DHS for first responders in two thousand five focused predominantly on terrorism training. Um, what we cannot do and what we did not immediately do after the storm passed and as the levees were breaking was to be able to bring in rescue workers and urban search and rescue teams and the medical teams because they themselves would then become disaster victims. 
So we had to come in very carefully and very methodically. And it frustrated me, too, because I would just rather have charged in there and done everything uh, we could have. And this is Brown trying to, like, give an interview and save his ass. Uh, top congressional congressional Democrats, uh, Senator Harry Reid and Representative Nancy Pelosi. Remember Harry Reid? Uh, issued statements yep. that FEMA He's failed miserably and its leadership should be fired. Brown's background is in law, finance, public service, and he does not have experience with emergency management. I mean, he fucking did after he was appointed. Like, yeah. who has experience in emergency management? Here's uh, another funny bit. Like, Senators, Senators Hillary Clinton <laughs> and Barbara Mikulski uh, said FEMA should be restored as an independent agency at the cabinet level. To yeah, the org chart is the problem here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, then we go to this this Cato article by uh, one Chris Edwards. And this was written in 2015. So roughly five years, I'm sorry, 10 years um, after Katrina. We have our retrospective. And uh, he writes, 10 years ago this week, Hurricane Katrina made landfall on the Gulf Coast and generated a huge disaster. The, form, the storm flooded New Orleans, killed more than 1,800, and caused uh, $100 billion in property damage. And uh, he goes on, uh, here are some of the key federal failures. Uh, confusion, key federal officials were not proactive. They gave faulty information to the public and they were not adequately trained. The 2006 bipartisan House report on the disaster, quote, a failure of initiative. Wasn't that the excuse they used for 9-11? Failure of imagination? Failure of initiative? Yeah, they gave six or seven excuses for that. <laughs> Why didn't NORAD shoot down the plane? So it turns that. out it's always the org chart, and we can <laughs> fix it through a simple piece of legislation. Right. And the problem will be solved. Yeah. Right. We have Isn't to, that we have so to combine agencies and make them do cross communication. That will right. alleviate the issues. Well, this this uh, this report, and I didn't actually read it. I, mean, it's not I think we should have a Department of Society, yeah. man. That way, we could all coordinate. It said federal agencies had varying degrees of unfamiliarity with their roles and responsibilities under the National Response Plan and National Incident Management System. Oh, boy. The report found that there was, quote, general confusion over mission assignments, deployment, well, no shit. and command structure. One reason was that FEMA's executive suites were full of political appointees with little disaster experience. Welcome Again, to the government, like, folks. <laughs> okay, so... How do I find myself a like vetted disaster artist? Like, what's the quota for like? What does that even the mean? Number like, of, like, I mean, a guy who's been in the Red Cross or the military or the Coast Guard. No, I, mean, I mean, I think these, these people, people would be like, obvious you can, you candidates. Can be, like all, all not a lawyer. Describing, they're, they're not like well, shit. Like nobody taught us how to know, rip out sheetrock effectively, and so we weren't <laughs> able to get to these people. It's all like, well, it turns out this relief effort constituting like tens of thousands of personnel and billions of dollars of resources was poorly managed. Like, 
so okay, you need somebody who is successfully managed a response to a large national disaster. How many people are there that fill that criteria exactly? Like, I mean, I, I can't think of any. Well, I, like, I don't know if I'm talking that, to a that wall, fits but that criteria. I mean, did, did my suggestions not make any sense? Coast Guard, well, for Red Cross, this, the military. This goes the there, yeah, like those are the organizations responsible, but they don't have experience. Like they have experience training for that, like depending. But like, you know, mostly with the Red Cross, like if you have a Red Cross mid-level person, it's like, oh, I spent 20 years at the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, depending on your roles and what specifically you were involved in and like the specific contours, the red cross isn't like in charge of shit. They have volunteers that are available. They run training programs. They run like limited supply distributions for some stuff. Sometimes like the coast guard, frankly, they're not like a disaster relief organization. They're like a paramilitary slash like law enforcement organization. Like I, it's just, you know, tell me who the appointee should have been that like this person would have been like this hyper competent straw man that like just knows how to make all these agencies that don't actually report to him quote-unquote, cooperate with information that they don't have and resources they can't get there. Yeah, and I I think that there's two sides to that. Part of it is that I think there was a general lack of um, uh, Australia? No, well, stones, I guess. People didn't have the balls to say uh, New Orleans sucks. Okay, it's a dump. It it is a poorly planned city, and this is this was inevitable. It's a historically corrupt place. It is a it is a historically poor place. It's a place where people cut corners. It exists mostly as a cultural nexus. And honestly, what could you really have done if you had the world's greatest minds? in disaster relief at work, no red tape. Could they really have saved all those people from dying? They might have saved some. Could they have saved multiple wards from being basically emulsified? Well, they okay. have saved the sewer system. I mean, I think you're talking about separate it. things here. You're talking about no, 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 before no, no. I'm, I'm architecture what, and engineering, and you're talking about after the engineering fails. What do you do? Those are separate departments. Like, that, okay, well, let me finish. My my point is adding on to what Hank is saying. Like people are, they're they're saying they're making these criticisms, and it was definitely big at the time. Well, it, it was it was a it was a failure of the government, or it was a failure of initiative, it was a failure of the org chart. We didn't. We had lawyers instead of disaster experts. But my point is everything that could have gone wrong with New Orleans was primed to go wrong anyways. It's it's a dump. It was it's certainly baked a, into the cake. It's baked into the cake. And my my thinking on this is no one wanted to admit that a majority black 
city that had been majority black for decades had driven itself to the brink of failure. And, and we do have a control experiment here. Right. And it's called so, Detroit. Well, uh, I was thinking more of Houston. the uh, the the Cajun Navy. Uh, uh, I was going to say uh, Houston, Houston and Harvey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the hurricane Harvey, which, you know, if you look at kind of the estimates of economic, but that's also damage, a very black city. So, right. I mean, it's a black city, but it's not necessarily kind of a, like Houston is a weird place because it's so sprawling. Uh, it's it's I a mean, very bizarre. It's actually a very American place because there's absolutely no culture there, and you'll you'll drive from freeway to another freeway, and in between you'll see about seventeen WalMarts and forty thousand McDonald's and houses, and then yeah. you repeat that for another seven times. And then like no building code, so then it's like between the McDonald's and the Walmart, you have like the compound, like <clears throat> like the. Uh, the contrast in an area, even though it kind of doesn't have any macro level uh, social organization, there's no like the spirit of Houston says X, Y, Z. Uh, I don't think that there's really kind of an integrated Houston wide like group of a hundred people that are basically on the same page and basically run things. But there's enough kind of nuggets of social organization that, Turns out you can get some rednecks in their bass boats and they can go around and they can like actually do a lot of good. And that's not something that necessarily didn't happen at some scale in New Orleans. There's a couple of good uh, video based uh, documentaries, uh, Trouble the Water and When the Levees Broke, that have like footage, phone calls etc. from people that were on site uh, during the disaster and immediately after that document things like this taking place and also situations where things just horribly failed. There's there's this 911 call from this family that's just trapped in their attic as the water rises and they're too dumb to figure out how to break out and they don't have an axe. So like they they literally slowly drown to death on fucking nine one one tape. It's it's horrific. Uh, but like you know, there's baked into the cake, and then there's like, okay, you know, given that this is going to be a shit show, how much of this is triage, and how much of this is like cauterization, you know? Right. And that's that's what I was also getting at. I mean, that was that's one side of the coin in that I think the metapolitical commentary that everyone was too afraid to say, even in 2005, was this was inevitable. OK, this city has this city, this part of this state has done this to itself by and large. And it's it's a failure of initiative on their part. That they fa- that they failed so catastrophically to do anything about this, and they had to rely on one of the most historically cumbersome and bizarre organizations on the planet to come help them, which is the U.S. federal bureaucracy. And that alone should have told you that these people were not prepared, and no one wanted to say like this is in part their fault. 
they screwed up. Like the idea that it's strictly Chertoff's fault or or any of these other guys, like these these are not good people. I'm not sticking up for them. These are all of W's cronies. But the notion well, that Cher- it like, Chertoff was uh was one of the architects, I think, for the uh uh, project for New American Century, and yeah. he's particularly, I believe, the guy who got the uh, security scanning contracts after 9-11. Notoriously uh, corrupt. You know, yes. physiognomy check on Michael Chertoff. That should about <laughs> sum it up. Yeah, insert your own echoes. But my, I'm not sticking up for these people, but the metapolitical yeah. commentary is what I would like to talk about here because I think it's a lesson for everyone that you should not outsource your own survival. Yeah. The notion that like this was this whole thing to this day has been reframed as an example of white on black racism. And it it is the Kanye clip here. Yeah. Uh, It is purely, it, it is purely an example of black cities. What was the Kanye clip? Because Wikipedia, I think, Uh, did some uh, post-facto editing on it because what I remember was he said George Bush doesn't give a fuck about black people and what the Wikipedia says is George Bush doesn't care about black people. And I mean, I'm I remember very interested in what there happened. There might have been more interjections edit. before or after the fact, but uh, it's a funny, you can you can find the video and you can do the lip reading for your own analysis. It was like a uh, live telecast fundraiser thing with Mike Myers of uh, uh, Austin Powers, SNL, <laughs> uh, SNL etc. fame, and Kanye West. And they're doing like the standard like telecast thing where it's like donations, these poor people, just like, you know, talking to fill time. And like Mike Myers is carrying the thing. Like, don't just look at the clip. Watch like, you know, the five minutes leading up to it. And like the five minutes after, whenever you like have kind of one of these clips that you're trying to do analysis of, but Kanye just is like silent and steaming. And Mike Myers is just like doing the standard like hosting thing. And Kanye just interjects like George W. Bush does not care about black people. And then it's just like silent as Mike Myers is like looking around terrified, like, You're going to hit the delay, boys? or <laughs> like, Kanye has got to be one of the most this? petulant people I've ever seen on the mass media stage. I mean, and George W. Bush is definitely like, yes, I would be proud to have Thomas Sowell as my neighbor. Right. Like, <laughs> probably the least like, racist guy on the planet on some I, level. Yeah, I, I agree. Like in a, in a very like Republican, like, sure, we all live in a society way but like uh and like you know therefore we can't have the the Luton and the robin or whatever it's like you know he's he's insensitive maybe to some of the like shibboleths in a very unintentional way but like the man made like aids relief to africa yeah i was about to say like this this guy Residency. This guy invited a bunch of like witchcraft practitioners to do a dance on the White House lawn. I mean, the notion that George W. Bush hates black people is insulting. It's like this and this ties back into this whole metapolitical commentary that surrounded Katrina 
before, during, and after it, which was, this is an example of racism. And W is the avatar of white America that doesn't care about black America, which is, I which guess, is ironic because he was supposed to be kind of the, the messianic figure for the Latinx future of the Republican Party. Right. I mean, the whole and like, let's not forget that the whole Texan cowboy thing is a, a what? Well, right. It was a meme that worked in both. He's, directions. he's from like, Connecticut. Folks, yeah, this, this family like is from his, fucking Connecticut. His dad is George H.W. Bush, yeah, son of Prescott Bush, <laughs> etc. It's like, sure, like the dude went out to, you know, seek his fortune getting bailed out of uh, oil companies, wherever the fuck, and to try to like do some venture capital uh, through uh, Latinxa genetics along with his brother, but you know. The idea that he's an avatar of uh, like white supremacy, it's like I, I highly doubt that the Bushes give a shit about like the white race as such. Like they're they're a family, they're an interest in and of themselves. It's like, you know, the Rothschilds don't look particularly uh, like they'd fail a physiognomy check anymore. And like that was kind of sort of intentional because that's just, uh, you know, sort of where they invest. The Bushes are all going to be in, in 20 years. The Bushes will all be Jews and being people. I mean, they all have basically magnificent there. mustaches and or yarmulkes. I think I think all of Jeb's kids are basically there. So. Um, so this, this is something I brought up earlier. Uh, the government was unprepared for Katrina, even though it was widely known that such a hurricane was probable and weather forecasters had accurately predicted the advance of Katrina before landfall a year prior to Katrina, government agencies had performed a simulation exercise, hurricane Pam for a hurricane of similar strength hitting New Orleans. But governments, quote, failed to learn important lessons from the exercise. And then I want to tack on something else really quick, because I, I think that I'm starting to try and build a picture of what I think this was really all about, and I guarantee it was not about hating fucking black people. This was something far weirder going on. Indecision plagued government leaders in the deployment of supplies and medical personnel decisions and in other areas. Even the grisly task of body recovery after Katrina was slow and confused. Bodies went uncollected for days as state and federal officials remained indecisive on a body recovery plan. FEMA waited for Louisiana to make decisions about bodies. But the governor of Louisiana blamed FEMA's tardiness in making a deal with the contractor. Similar problems of too many bureaucratic cooks in the kitchen hampered decision-making in areas such as organizing evacuations, providing law enforcement resources to Louisiana. And then I'm tacking on one more thing. Free-flowing Katrina aid unleashed a torrent of fraud and abuse. Federal auditors estimated that $1 billion or more in aid payments for individuals were invalid. Other estimates are put, put the waste at $2 billion. An Associated Press analysis found that people claiming to live in as many as 162,000 homes did not exist before the storms may have improperly received as much as $1 billion in tax money. 
I wonder if they voted for Biden. And then there's a couple kind of there's a, so there's a couple more little examples here. FEMA repeatedly blocked uh, private relief efforts. So there was a lot of these like private relief efforts that were people were trying to help from across the country. Think of yeah, like my, the response to 9 church in yeah. in like omitted flyover country state was like let's let's try to really do something here. Yes, it was same thing with me growing up in my town. There were. There were signs up. The the churches in town, the local Episcopalian and Presbyterian churches. This was had a uh, this was a up. plot point in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, that he uh, he takes in uh, the uh, the Katrina refugees, the uh, blacks. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, JB Smooth. So yeah, here's a few that. more points. FEMA repeatedly blocked delivery of emergency supplies ordered by the Methodist Hospital in New York from its out of state headquarters. FEMA turned away doctors volunteering their services. Methodist Sister Hospital, Calmet, for example, sent doctors to the emergency facility set up at New Orleans Airport to offer services, but they were turned away. Private medical air transport companies played an important role in evacuations after Katrina, but FEMA officials provided no help in coordinating these services, and they actively blocked some of the flights. The Red Cross was denied access to the Superdome to, emer- to deliver supplies. FEMA refused Amtrak's offer to evacuate victims and wouldn't return calls from the American Bus Association. Indeed, both Motor Coach Association and American Bus Association could not get through to anyone at FEMA. So keep all of that in your mind. And then I want to pivot to uh, something by uh, regarding the work of Jeremy Scahill. Now, we've talked about Scahill before. He is probably... Uh, politically, he's a he's an idiot, but from an investigative journalist standpoint, he's sharp, and he is probably America's uh. foremost, he's he's America's foremost expert for sure on Blackwater, or at least he was for a long time, and he was one of the few people who was actually attempting to document Blackwater's involvement with all this. So keep in mind everything I just told you. Uh, this is from an article uh, actually in Mother Jones from 2009 by James Ridgway, which is discussing uh, some of what Scahill had uh, had looked up and some of the research he had done. So uh, when asked, oh, it's, it started immediately after the storm and flood hit when civilian aid was scarce, but private security forces already had boots on the ground. Some, like Blackwater, which has since redubbed itself Z or XE were under federal contract while a host of others answered to wealthy residents and businessmen who had departed well before Katrina and needed help protecting their property. According to Jeremy Scales reporting in the nation, Blackwater set up an HQ in downtown New Orleans armed as they would be in Iraq with automatic rifles, guns strapped to legs and pockets overflowing with ammo. Blackwater contractors drove around in SUVs and unmarked cars, with no license plates. When asked what authority they were operating under, uh, they were they replied, "We're on contract with the Department of Homeland Security." And then, pointing to one of his comrades, he said, "He was even deputized by the governor of the state of Louisiana. We can make arrests and use like the force if we deem it necessary." The man then held up the gold Louisiana law enforcement badge. Uh, Blackwater operators described their mission in New Orleans as "quote securing neighborhoods." When National Guard troops descended on the city, the Army Times described their role as fighting, quote, the insurgency in the city. 
Brigadier General Gary Jones, who commanded the Louisiana National Guards Task Force, told the paper, this place is going to look like little Somalia. We're going to go out and take this city back. This will be a combat operation to get this city under control. Ten days after the storm, the New York Times reported that although the city was calm with no signs of looting, though it acknowledged that it had taken place previously, and obviously there was a lot of looting going on, but just roll with me for a sec. New Orleans has turned into an armed camp patrolled by thousands of local, state, and federal law enforcement officers, as well as National Guard troops and active duty soldiers. The local police superintendent ordered all weapons, including legally registered firearms, confiscated. But as the Times noted, that order didn't apply to hundreds of security guards hired by businesses. Scahill spoke to Mike Montgomery, the chief of security, for one wealthy businessman who said his men came under fire from, quote, black gangbangers near the Ninth Ward. Armed with an AR-15 Glocks, Montgomery and his men, quote, unleashed a barrage of bullets in the general direction of the alleged shooters on the overpass. After that, all I heard was moaning and screaming, and the shooting stopped. That was it. Enough said. So the picture that I'm trying to draw here is you have the government clearly understood this as a highly likely risk. They had war-gamed it the previous year. Everyone knew. No one wanted to say it publicly. Everyone knew New Orleans is a dump, and it's only a matter of time before a – bad enough hurricane turns it into, as the fucking Brigadier General just said, little Somalia. And then FEMA is placed in charge of coordinating massive amounts of resources, logistical, food, medical, all of it, um, and proceeds to completely botch it at every level. Almost, it seems, purposefully on some level. And then you have DHS assuming direct control over the FEMA office when they let uh, Brown go. And then you have all these guys running around the city, um, playing mercenary, taking people's guns, shooting people. The impression that you get from all of this is this was highly exploited chaos. And there was obviously an attempt here to do some kind of training operation. And I feel like part of what was really going on in New Orleans was not not necessarily, well, there's a lot of looting. We can't say there's a lot of looting because, you know, people are going to think we're racist. So we got to, like, get the contractors in there. No, like, there's nothing to loot in New Orleans. It's, it's a shithole. There's, like, one area to loot, the French Quarter. No one wanted to go over there and loot anyways. The idea that anyone cares about it being looted was farcical. What was really happening was an obvious attempt to exploit the situation and do a combat operation in an American city to test it out and to see if anyone would rat, see if they could get away with it, and they could iron out any kinks in case they had to do this again. And this is this is only like a year or two after the Patriot Act is passed, by the way. So this was like ramping up, ramping up the pressure. Okay, like we're spying on everyone. Now we got to start war gaming domestic insurgencies in American cities. And we're going to choose one that's just blown out and there's no utilities, there's no lights. So it stimulates some kind of real wartime environment like Baghdad. 
or like Mogadishu, where we can give our soldiers some real prep work. I think that ascribes too much agency to the parties involved. Like, I'm sure it was it was nice to have the uh, the contract and everybody like puts on their war face or whatever. And it's like, all right, well, we don't know what the fuck is going on. And there are a shitload of guns in New Orleans. So uh, let's everybody you know, stay cool here. But I mean, the sort of training, quote unquote, that you would want for uh dealing with an environment like that isn't necessarily sort of the tactical, like how do we do patrols or like even which areas are we going to, although it's handy, like it's always handy to get more time, like running around doing stuff with friends. Uh, The stuff that you would care about if you were going to go full, like, 2000s era paranoid. I mean, like Golden Age Alex Jones, I guess, as opposed to Second Golden Age Alex Jones, which we're currently in, uh, would be actually establishing local governance and institution building, the sort of stuff that we purported to be kind of sort of doing in Iraq, but not really. So I I don't think that the deployment of G uh, or Uh, any of these other shady characters it's like you have federal facilities you need to protect these federal facilities you have a budget for it so let's do these sketchy guys these sketchy guys are like sure money is money also like could be fun uh probably won't be that bad uh given that are like probably nobody has ieds over here unlike the other alternative for our business it uh it just sort of seems like kind of a win-win uh, for, I mean, violence specialists, I guess, uh, if you're going to be all sociological with it. Uh, and also people who just kind of wanted to do somewhere between a LARP and a, uh, between a LARP and a drill, I guess, of uh, actually, you know, Oh, if things actually get bad, like the Danziger bridge incident, I think is kind of a good case study of this. Um, So you had this situation where there was a neighboring, uh, a neighboring town's uh, police department had basically set up a checkpoint on one end of a bridge uh, across this river going into new Orleans. And you had this crowd of people, uh, not apparently armed as far as anyone knows. And I don't really give a shit because it's like, if there's a hurricane and things get real, I'm going to be armed to the teeth. It's like, it's like, bro, where the fuck is your gun? Like things are getting crazy out here. Here, take this. Uh, Anyway, apparently non-threatening crowd that was uh, shot up uh, to smithereens by this, uh, the sheriff's department on the other end of the Danzinger Bridge. It took quite a while uh, for there to be a criminal case or conviction, and then there was some sketchy stuff by the prosecutor's office that looked like it might have been taking a dive. Like you had the the prosecutors commenting on random web forums about the case in the comments section in a way that was pretty clearly going to be discovered. 
so there's some suspicion that somebody might have uh, sort of tried it to get the uh, the prosecutorial case uh, thrown out there. But I mean, from the cop's perspective, it's like nothing here is real. It's 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 a simulacra of the shit hitting the fan like shit kind of hit the fan over there. And now you're just anticipating this zombie horde to come storming across this bridge. And so you've got to be strapped up and willing to shoot anything that moves. And by the way, like, why not bust out some of this Milserp hardware and crack a cold one with the boys and like strap on our prettiest vests and finally get to use all this shit that we got gratis. Like it's, it's when there's that boundary line between where the LARP starts to become practice that things get really sketchy before people actually figure out what page everybody is on. Hank, uh, earlier you were doing what sounded like a three-point summary of some stuff, and I think you stopped at number two. Uh, Do you remember where you're going with that? Oh, I have no idea. I did want to want to slip in. Uh, Whomst here has seen Treme? <laughs> I haven't even heard of it. It was uh, David Simon's uh, failed follow up to. Uh, I, I saw the, the first Wire. like two episodes, and it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. It's not good. The like, Wire is not good. I mean, well, it, yeah, can we it doesn't just say it. It's it's not it's not a good show. It sucks. It just it it's a whole show that illustrates how terrible Baltimore is. That's all I need to know. <laughs> I mean, Treme does a pretty good job of that too. It's like oh, this rich, vibrant culture of like, <laughs> like oh, but we deal with all the issues too because it's post Katrina. So I mean, the big payoff to the first season is like oh yeah, that guy that got arrested, yeah, he drowned in his jail cell. Probably we're not totally sure all the cops fucked off. Uh, Like that's the huge payoff. Uh, But there's a very funny, the only thing other than like the big payoff that I remember is the Steve Zahn character uh, who uh, at one point gets into a fight over whether or not he has an N word pass. uh, And like, it's determined that he like learns a valuable lesson. It wasn't very good, but I think it was a, a kind of attempt to uh, solidify in the public consciousness, like kind of a meta narrative around uh, Katrina. If nobody else has seen it, then I'm not going to like discourse on it solo because I don't, I don't really think it was that great, but uh, it was an interesting little show. If you've got like infinite spare time to watch, uh, to watch this kind of like throwaway drama and, uh, the subject matter appeals to you. My favorite Katrina related piece of media was the absolute masterpiece. That was bad Lieutenant port of call in new Orleans. Oh, that's so fucking good. Oh, with Harvey Keitel. Is that new? Orleans? Oh, I could talk oh. about that. Nicholas Cage. No, no, no. Interestingly enough, um, that's probably New York. It was, but... Well, so like, Har- so, okay. So you're thinking of the Harvey Keitel film where, spoiler alert, at the end, uh, he's basically waiting 
for the axe to fall and he sits down and smokes crack or meth or whatever with these two junkies and watches the uh, sports ball game that will be sealing his fate. Interestingly enough, though, when Werner Herzog made Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, the director of that film, the Harvey Keitel film, Abel Ferrara, was incredibly pissed about this. And he said that if the movie was good, he would eat his shoe. And apparently he watched it. And because it's obviously it's an objective fact that that movie's a masterpiece, uh, he apparently ate his shoe. Was it a sneaker or uh, a boot? Like what, uh, what? How hardcore are we talking Unclear. here? Unclear. Unclear. Yeah. Sandal. Yeah. I think he Depends. boiled it though. I, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah it soup and doesn't count. That's I funny. think that's the story. I could be mixing it up with something else, uh, but I also remember him saying that he hoped one of one of the two of them, Herzog, or it's probably Ferrari, since Herzog's mostly uh, mostly a nice man. Uh, he wanted to be hit by a bus or something. I don't know. Can't remember. It's been a little while, but that movie's excellent. But yeah, uh, Treme, that that that's garbage. And I agree, The Wire also is is pretty much garbage, but. I haven't seen that either. New Orleans, uh, yeah. Well, we talked about well, it a little Can bit. you talk a little bit more about your experience there, Nick? I mean, we heard your yeah, attempt Nick, to like go to the Superdome, but what else happened there? Um, well, I mean, like I said, it was a it was a hollowed-out city. The population was, was something like 350,000 people. The, the, prior to Katrina, I think it was... I mean, it was close to a million. I don't think it was over a million. I yeah. think it was like eight hundred or nine hundred thousand. So, um, so you drove through you know, it, I, or like there was still like debris yeah, everywhere. I, I, so you I, walked around, or like what? What are we talking about? How like soon after was this? Uh, it was a little. It was a little bit. A little bit after. Um, it had largely been cleaned up, but uh, just talking to people there, the kind of stories that I heard of. Particularly of uh, police executions, that was that was a common theme. Or they were just lining people up and shooting them. So were they settling scores, or just they, would, were, they were shooting randomly, yeah, or settling at scores. looters settling scores? No, they were they were settling scores of what drug dealers. Uh, or... Some of that made it into the paper. I know that uh, there was at least one story that made it into the. To the mainstream papers, it was like a triple execution. But I think they managed just to sweep it under the rug more or less effectively. But New Orleans, I I, I don't share. I think that New Orleans, um, contrary to what Hans is saying, I, I do think that it's one of the most fascinating American cities in a lot of respects. It's certainly the most European-like American city. I, I agree. I, I've been there the only border. once, but I found it to be a fascinating place, and I would not call it a shithole. I think it's probably got problems, as a lot of uh, vibrant cities do, but there's a lot of interesting culture and history that are still worth uh, preserving, uh, but the management, obviously, uh, is in need of improvement. I mean, in just a few days there, I met like voodoo practitioners, uh, BMX like meth pirates. Uh, Trent Reznor apparently used to have an of office there. Strange people. Yeah, um, the the actual and the quality of street of music and art that you find on the street is actually high. 
Like you find some really talented people who sleep in their car. Yeah, I, I believe that. It, I mean, it, the, the French Quarter was always commented on as something like that. I don't know exactly where you were, but um, I was young when I was there, so my memories are very scant. But I do remember um, some very interesting old school. Um, I don't know what they're called, like mausoleums, but they don't they don't bury their dead underground because of something to do with the, the groundwater. And so all of the cemeteries are these kind of uh, almost like Egyptian tombs. And even that is sort of architecturally interesting. And then they also have a lot of uh, riverboat style stuff where there's a lot of uh, kind of that old Tom Sawyer feel where there's like a lot of wrought iron and wood. And so, I mean, it's an interesting place. Uh, I'd hate to see it, you know, all go up and smoke. It had some fantastic bookstores too. Absolutely fantastic bookstores. Small ones that were just you could find some real gems and you know it's it's one of the few american cities that really feels old i mean in the grand scheme of things it's not that old but it it has that feeling and there's a lot of strange mysteries there uh, i was never i honestly the worst part of nolens is the is the drunk tourists like by far like Bur- bourbon Bur- bourbon street that like that is a shithole no no doubt no doubt about that but that's just because of the people who are who are there spending money and getting drunk. Yeah, often the case. Uh, I wanted to briefly, or not, uh, but at least uh, briefly, touch upon some of the failures uh, that were attributed to the design and construction of the levees that the Army yeah, Corps of Engineers... Yeah, I wanted to talk about the Army Corps of Engineers, too. Yeah, that that's something I wanted to talk about, because I know they got a lot of blame for that i mean i when in doubt blame the federal government (laughs) fine by me but i'm curious uh yeah you guys are more engineer as far as i could tell they basically cheaped out they didn't go for the platinum plan uh and uh they only went for the the uh the bronze plan so it's effectively they had these retaining walls that were designed to yeah. Was the FEMA was the FEMA trailer that never materialized? Was that all? Was that platinum plan or was that was that bronze? That might have been blinged out with uh, aluminized uh, siding, but probably not real platinum. So I'd call it a bronze <laughs> plan. <laughs> oh, I just remembered the whole. We can talk about the whole Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie thing uh, at some later point here, but I had forgotten. Oh, that I and Benjamin Button that. was was set in Hurricane Katrina for some reason. <laughs> No, no, their their whole like real estate uh, thing there. Um, but we we can talk about that later. I am also interested in earthworks. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've actually sort of built things on waterfronts, and it actually is kind of a challenge because you're you're dealing with stuff that um, it has a volatile trend line. So in other words, there's there's cyclical patterns, but sometimes those cycles actually are magnified uh, past where you have evidence that they were magnified. So they have this concept in uh, floodplain uh, real estate analysis called uh, like the 100-year and the 500-year line. And I don't know what this qualified as, but effectively it's how high will this water go within sort of a 95% confidence interval in, in 100 or 500 years. And what they designed these levees for was probably something on the lower end. Um, but 
I think also akin to what the guys in Japan were dealing with, with Fukushima, where they had that giant wall of ocean hit them past what they've ever seen in the, in recorded history. Um, there's only so much you can anticipate. So I don't, I don't necessarily want to condemn, um, the army Corps of engineers, but what they did end up doing was they, uh, initially, I think it was in the eighties, they had built the, uh, at that time, the current levee system, uh, it had only gone down about 15 feet or so below, uh, the, the water level of, or the river level, uh, or the, um, Lake punk and train, whatever it's called. Uh, and then, um, that's the uh, underground part. So that basically is the footing for the wall to keep it from tipping over under the, the weight of the water. Uh, and then obviously the wall itself has to go up past the top of the, uh, the, the surface of the water and then plus an additional amount to account for flooding. Uh, so it was, um, either the water rose past that or it actually flipped it over probably a combination of both. I don't remember the details, but what they ended, what, what, uh, the aftermath tells me because they redesigned them is that they didn't go deep enough. And so I think they, they doubled the depth and then they also made the footing instead of a, a vertical, uh, post that went straight down. They actually put a horizontal component on the bottom to keep it from, uh, tipping over. And so it's just, it's like adding a literal foot to the leg of the wall. And, um, that, that's the sort of just basic engineering like analysis. It's like you're, you're sort of running statistical models where you're like, okay, uh, we usually try to put in a three X safety factor as a general civil engineering principle. When you're building a bridge, it's like, okay, how many trucks, uh, are expected to be on this? Okay. Then triple the amount of steel required to hold that. That's typically what they'll do. Um, and then there's actually some funny uh, footage of how the Soviets used to do this because they're Soviets and they have this kind of style, which I actually am kind of fond of. They'd act, Instead of driving trucks, they drive tanks over the bridge. <laughs> and so you can't really do that in a case of a levee and just put a bunch of like battleships next to it. But uh, you can sort of simulate it on like a scale down model maybe. Uh, and then try to anticipate if this would hold up. But they, they basically, long and short of it, they didn't have a deep enough footing and the wall was too short. Um, so make of that what you will. Uh, but the problem was, you know, and this, this is the problem when you're, you're writing insurance contracts uh, or not even bothering to insure, is that there's going to be a long period where it seems like you wasted your money. So apparently they only saved about $100 million, but at the time that seemed like a lot because for all of previous history, this had never happened. And so why waste $100 million? That seems like a lot. Well, actually, Katrina ended up costing, uh, what, uh, three orders of magnitude, more than that, four orders of magnitude is $100 billion plus in cost. Uh, so you're talking about like a thousand times as, as expensive. Um, but the problem is, in government and in corporations and any private agreement, it's like, well, if I'm going to build something and we're basically building in asteroid defense and Martian invasion defense, it's like, yeah, you could pay for that beforehand. And in case that does happen, you're safe. But the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. And so in reality, a lot of this stuff gets cut. And I just know this is how it works from experience and just intuition. So again, I don't blame the army Corps of engineers for this. It's just 
this is what happens when people are dealing with uncertainty. It's very difficult. You don't know what you need to prepare for because you can't predict the future. So I don't know. Uh, take of take all that for what it's worth. But I'm sort of. I don't have any firm conclusions based on this. It's just like, okay, well, obviously we got our calculations wrong, so we're going to up up them for the next time. I think that's all yeah. we can do, really. There was a meme that, you know, New Orleans is a city that in some sense metaphysically should not exist. It's like, okay, well, you need a port at the end of the Mississippi River for obvious reasons. And there's the yeah, you could say that about Amsterdam. You could say that about New York. I mean, come on, you know. Sure. It's well, like, I mean, Amsterdam, I'm agreeing New York, with you. Uh, yeah. have, have a, a little bit more of a productive uh, capital there. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is again like the whole like neoliberals just like going out and saying it, and then lip like progs being like, "Boy, you just said it," and the neolibs being like yeah but where's the lie that neilib's being like you're a monster like just the back and forth there is just resounding but i mean the ninth ward there's no reason for like the ninth ward to exist in new orleans like it's just a concentration of people yeah like they have culture they have history they have family connections but imagine if you could like pull a stalin like option one is like you all get flooded and now you're dispersed all over the country. Some of you are in, you know, Houston or Alabama or Florida or whatever versus like option B is you spend a hundred million dollars on a levy that like, well, we re- raised it from 95th percentile to 99th percentile, but turns out we hit a 99.5% percentile and you're flooded every, you know, 130 years anyway. Versus option C is pull a Stalin and like you live here now. It's safer. Yeah, yeah. Go here. go move move your your home to a place that's 10 feet up. It, that that's like the bo- obvious like basic solution to all this. Like, yeah. okay, and guess what? Your just, city's literally below mm-hmm. sea level. Probably not the best location. Probably. This not. is what like they're trying to do apparently with federal flood insurance because. No private company will offer um, flood insurance for obvious reasons. Like it's really expensive and there's a very concentrated risk. There's a lot of factors that uh, are difficult to model. And if you get it wrong, you get screwed in ways that are difficult to predict. So there are certain uh, areas where they've had like eight claims over the last 20 years for total losses. And at some point the feds are like, ugh. Like, we're legally obliged to offer you this insurance. However, like, here's $20,000 to move. Like, your house is definitely going to be a total loss sometime in, like, the next decade. So, like, yeah, we, we have to pay for it if you keep paying us the premiums. However, like, it seems like it would be more fun to not be flooded Go live somewhere else. Like, we figured it out. This is not a great place, given current American, like, building styles and the local geography and how we run our sewers and everything else. It's it's so, fascinating if you visit some of these coastal areas. I've only seen uh, Houston um, in my adult life and seen the construction uh, techniques applied. And when you get close to the water, uh, and hurricanes are 
definitely real uh, in that part of the the country. And so it, it go to Galveston. I mean, Jesus, like the place has been underwater like multiple times. But um, these homes, they're literally built on stilts. And so they're already baking into the cake. Okay, the water is literally going to rise like 15 feet. And we, as a default, do not even want to put the first floor until we're elevated that much. And then still, the hurricane will smash the windows, rip the roofs off. It's just a shitty location. I mean, I, I don't... Miami scares the fuck out of me. Like, have you ever looked at one of those picturesque uh, pictures of Miami photographed, like, from the water? And it's like... <laughs> it looks like it's, like, you, in you the water. <laughs> see, like, there's a wall, and then, like, the bottom floor of right. all of those downtown Miami skyscrapers is, right. like behind and underneath the wall that itself is like two feet above the <laughs> the water yeah like it doesn't make any goddamn sense yeah well it's uh it's got good sunshine when the if you when really want to get hurricanes out there. you should um you should look at like environmental impact report studies or any geophysical or geological studies on just southern florida in general and their in their construction industry and their infrastructure industry it is hilarious I, <laughs> how on the verge of disaster florida is at any given time and the fact that m- the, most of the soil quote unquote of southern florida is right beneath it is basically water yeah it's a and, sandbar yeah like yeah. you're like the bottom half of your state you know, when it rains, their sewers like just spew salt water into the street. Yeah. Like just, you know, it's a bad weather day and you're driving through a foot of water in some streets. It's- I think it's also very educational to understand who your neighbors are. It, or I should say who your um, fellow citizens are in this country when just about every uh, hurricane season, the news report will come on and it'll show uh, footage of the local Costco or Home Depot and all the shelves are basically drained of all the sort of building supplies. You want to board up a window, uh, uh, portable water, bottled water's all gone like people do not think until literally the last minute to do basic preparations. And I think that, and I think Katrina was just the perfect encapsulation of this for why America is really not a nation. It's just that the whole, like once you pull out the veneer of the credit cards and the, the mass media, we really don't have that much social fabric to rely upon and the individual accountability has sort of been outsourced to very dysfunctional organizations, which are staffed by the dysfunctional people that we are sending to Washington. And so if you really are naive enough to trust in your your neighbors and you, uh, you trust the government to save you in a crisis situation like this, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, there's just been example after example where you are foolish to outsource your survival to these types of people if we lived in a country again i'll bring up japan again and many people have done this analogy but if you lived in a country where the social fabric was much stronger uh the behavior after the arguably much more devastating uh natural disaster that happened in fukushima uh the behavior of the japanese could not have been more 
uh, different than what happened in New Orleans. Uh, the people were waiting um, politely in lines. There were no riots or lootings. There, I never heard of a murder happening. Uh, the 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 sacrifices that the Japanese throughout the country had to make in order to uh, work around that problem in a relatively unpopulated part of the country were pretty impressive. Tokyo had rolling blackouts scheduled so that they could make up for the loss of the the grid uh, energy that was uh, no longer there from the power plant, and their their ability to coordinate and work as a society was uh, stellar, and it just puts all other countries to shame, but especially a first quote unquote, first world country like America, in my opinion. So I think people should really take note of this event to take it upon themselves to take responsibility. You, you need to be smart about where you live. You need to be smart about, you know, what, uh, preparations you put into place and what connections you have with the people around you. Uh, you cannot rely upon these weird political appointees that have completely, uh, non-applicable backgrounds to save you. Uh, it's, it's just lazy and foolish. Um, you really have to just go back to basics and just look around and say, Hey, look, uh, if things didn't, uh, go according to the propaganda, I'm on my own. And so people should start acting that way now while they have the time and the luxury to do it while things are still on the store shelves. I mean, again, COVID, the same thing happened. You know, toilet paper, like the most basic, one of the, arguably the most basic consumer good, arguably. I mean, come on, like that's, that's been around for, I don't know how long. And the concept of, of personal sanitation has been around for centuries, if not longer. And people were panicking, which was dumb, first of all. And second of all, they were unprepared to have a sufficient amount of personal hygiene equipment. And even if you ran out of toilet paper, you don't need toilet paper, but people were acting like they did and fighting people in the supermarkets. It's just, I don't know how many more examples people need, but I, I'm, I'm done giving them. I want you to know how valuable their newspaper is in these circumstances. <laughs> yeah. I usually burn mine after I read them. Well, there's an, there's an interesting field of study um, called paleo tempestology. And what that basically is, is the study of, prehistoric hurricanes. But the study of, I think, technically uh, tropical cyclone activity, but normally it's associated with prehistoric hurricane sediment. And one of the primary regions, or two primary regions of interest to this field uh, are the coastlines along the Gulf of Mexico and uh, broadly the, the North American eastern seaboard from Florida to roughly Rhode Island. And what they found through extensive studies over many years is that, um, and this is actually an article from uh, uh, 2015, monster hurricanes reached U.S. during prehistoric periods of ocean warming. Uh, intense hurricanes, possibly more powerful than any storms New England has experienced in recorded history, frequently pounded the region during the first millennium from the peak of the Roman Empire to the height of the Middle Ages, according to a new study. The findings could have implications for the intensity and frequency of hurricanes the U.S. could experience as ocean temperatures increase. A new record of sediment deposits from Cape Cod shows evidence that 23 severe hurricanes hit New England between the years 250 and 1150, 
the equivalent of a severe storm about once every 40 years. Many of these hurricanes were likely more intense than any that have hit the area in recorded history, according to the study. The prehistoric hurricanes were likely Category 3 storms, like Katrina, or Category 4 storms, like Hurricane Hugo, that would be catastrophic if they hit the region today. The study is the first to find evidence of historically unprecedented hurricane activity along the northern east coast of the United States, Donnelly said. It also extends the hurricane record for the region by hundreds of years back to the first century. These records suggest that prehistorical interval was unlike what we've seen in the last few hundred years. The most powerful storm to hit Cape Cod in recent history was Hurricane Bob in 91, a Category 2 storm that was one of the costliest in New England history. Storms of that intensity have only reached the region three times since the 1600s. And I was thinking about this earlier, um, and kind of in the context of Katrina in the region as a whole. And I was also thinking back to our episode on wildfires. And most of the uh, natural history that has been revealed to us about wildfires in North America um, is that we're actually in, in a bit of a lull, historically speaking. If you think they're bad now, as I said on the episode, imagine millions upon millions of acres every year in total hellfire. It's just a regular thing. Well, we're in a bit of a lull now. And um, all sort of geological studies, particularly of states like Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, parts of Texas, Florida, uh, particularly the, the, the Gulf Coast states, show that these are, these are areas that have been purely sculpted by large storm activities. And clearly storms that are beyond anything we could imagine today, with some level of frequency to the point where it is completely reshaped how the rivers flow, how these marshes have been formed, how certain deltas have been formed, um, how the sediment of the soil underneath much of the kind of top layer ground actually kind of exists. It's just a lot of this uh, porous limestone that over time has been washed through over and over and over again. And it's just sort of waiting to collapse due to so many hundreds of thousands of years of storms. Um, and I think that we need to be cognizant of if you think it's bad now, imagine if the, the expected prehistoric levels of storm activity were the norm right now. I mean, if New Orleans was getting slammed with a Cat 4, prehistoric level Cat 4 or Cat 5 every 20 years, every 30 years, it would just cease to exist. And I think that we're kind of lucky that our civilization and, you know, us as a country exists in this happy lull period. Because um, there is some evidence that in the 1600s, uh, on multiple occasions, the English colonies were nearly wiped out by hurricanes. Um, Jamestown was almost completely destroyed as a result of a hurricane and supply lines being cut off from England. And if that kind of thing were to become slowly more and more of a reality, you have to think, what are the financial implications of that? 
what are the cultural implications of that? At what point can we no longer pass the buck around and blame the org chart and blame government response and blame racism and acknowledge that uh, we, you know, you have to make huge civilizational efforts, like maybe abandoning a city or rethinking a new place to put that city. I think that, you know, the lesson you can learn from Katrina is that we got off easy. Just the way that the lesson you can learn from the wildfire season every year in California is relative to the past, you guys are getting off really easy. This this region used to be underwater constantly and being washed away constantly. Uh, you're sort of lucky to live here right now in this period in time. Yeah. 